Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, we're joined by historian Andrew Robinson. He tells the story of the time Albert Einstein spent in Britain as he sought refuge in the years leading up to World War II, from living alone in an isolated countryside holiday hut, toiling away peacefully at his mathematics, to blowing minds as he delivered lectures on relativity. We learn more about Einstein's mindset and how he eventually came to settle in the USA. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution back in October 2019. If you want to hear more like this, head over to rigb.org to sign up for upcoming talks. Whenever we um, think about uh, Einstein, who I think we could call the world's best-known scientist, we generally picture him in relation to Germany. Um, or we think of him in connection with Switzerland, um, where he first became a scientist. Or we think of him in relation to uh, the United States. Uh, and here he is in Princeton in his study in 1951 uh, with a portrait of Mahatma Gandhi uh, on the wall behind him. Or perhaps we think of him in relation to Israel. Uh, and that's because he left his archives, his massive archives, to uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Less often considered is Britain, uh, the subject of my talk. Uh, but I think it'd be no exaggeration to say that uh, Britain is the country that made Einstein into the worldwide phenomenon he is today. And I hope by the end of the talk you'll understand why I say that. Profound and creative, Einstein's entanglement with Britain was both intellectual and emotional. In 1927, uh, while he was living in Germany, um, he wrote to a British physicist in Oxford, Frederick Lindemann, uh, later Lord Charwell, uh, and he said, in England, my work has received greater recognition than anywhere else in the world. In 1933, when he was revisiting uh, Britain, he told uh, a London journalist with uncharacteristic fervor, I love this country. And in 1937, uh, after he'd gone to the United States, relocated himself, um, he wrote to a German physicist in Britain, um, a friend, Max Born, that Britain is the most civilized country of the day. That was 1937, when he was living in America. Now, his relationship with Britain uh, flourished for over half a century. Uh, in the 1890s, British theoretical and experimental physics, as epitomized by Newton, sparked his scientific development both at school and in college in Switzerland. In 1919, British astronomers uh, confirmed his general theory of relativity. Uh, which made Einstein almost instantly uh, internationally famous. In 1933, as Philip uh, referred to, uh, Britain saved him from likely assassination by Nazi extremists by offering him refuge. And in 1955, uh, just before his death, um, he signed uh, what was his most enduring political statement uh, the Russell-Einstein Manifesto against the spread of nuclear weapons in the Cold War. Um, and that was initiated by Bertrand Russell 
and it was, in fact, the last document that Einstein signed. Einstein was an Anglophile, uh, according to, I'm quoting, um, three American scholars of Einstein, key figures in their field, um, Alice Calapris, uh, Daniel Kenefick, and Robert Schulman. Um, and that's from their, that comment is from their book, An Einstein Encyclopedia, published in 2015. Nonetheless, it's fair to say that Einstein's specialists, including his many biographers, have tended, I would say, to downplay his relationship with Britain because I think of its, the reason is it's diverse and subtle. Uh, and I'll try and give you a sense of that. Um, and I know, uh, speaking personally, that I underrated it um, in my first book on Einstein called Einstein, 100 Years of Relativity, published in 2005, as did the nine expert contributors to the book, uh, who included um, three Nobel Prize winners in physics. So we all did. Now, my new book, Einstein on the Run, uh, is the first amazingly, really, uh, considering how many books there are on Einstein, to focus on Einstein and Britain. And it brings together material uh, that is both familiar and unfamiliar, and some of it is, is hitherto unpublished, uh, and it's mainly from disparate parts of the Einstein archives, um, not only in Jerusalem, but also in this country. And these archives in Jerusalem contain an amazing 30,000 documents, uh, which makes them similar in size to the archives of Napoleon Bonaparte, and several times the size of the archives of Newton and Galileo, according to a scholar at the Einstein Papers Project at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, since the 1980s, this Einstein Papers Project has been publishing uh, or overseeing the publication of uh, 15 large volumes of the collected papers of Albert Einstein, the latest of which um, is published in 2018, concludes only in 1927. So there are nearly three decades of Einstein's life still to be published by the collected papers. And I think it's fair to say it's no wonder that Einstein still does surprise and fascinate the world. There is so much material, uh, much of it of real interest, uh, and, and much of it not very well known. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, uh, who was friendly with Einstein, said in a speech in London in 1930, um, at a dinner to honor Einstein, I rejoice at the new universe to which he has introduced us. I rejoice in the fact that he has destroyed all the old sermons, all the old absolutes, all the old cut-and-dried conceptions, even of time and space, which were so discouraging. Um, the inspiration for Einstein's theory, the special theory of relativity, that is, published in 1905, was unquestionably uh, British physics. Uh, on the walls of his apartment in 1920s Berlin, and also in his Princeton house later, uh, he hung portraits of three British natural philosophers, uh, the physicists Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell, and no other scientists, only these three. 
He said, England has always produced the best physicists. That was said in 1925 to a young Jewish woman who was attending his lectures on relativity in Berlin. And he advised her to study physics at Cambridge. And he said, um, I'm not thinking only of Newton. Uh, there would be no modern physics without Maxwell's electromagnetic equations. I owe more to Maxwell than to anyone. Now, uh, after a slow beginning uh, in 1905, Einstein began to be well known uh, among European physicists. And many of you will probably know this photograph from the Solvay Congress of 1911 in Brussels. Um, Einstein is standing uh, second from right. Um, and at the table is Marie Curie, Henri Poincaré, the mathematician. And at the back, uh, standing uh, second from left, uh, is Max Planck. And then right at the back uh, is this young man, uh, who I'll say more about, Frederick Lindemann, who was the um, secretary of the Congress. And incidentally, Einstein spoke on quantum theory, not on relativity, in 1911 at this Congress. Now, there's also uh, something from the Royal Institution Archives I couldn't resist including. Um, it's a postcard written to William Lawrence Bragg in England by all the scientists at the Solvay Congress in, in 1913. Um, and it's signed by Einstein, Marie Curie, uh, and Lorentz, and many others. And they're saying, we're sorry um, that you can't be here for whatever reason. Now, also absent at that Congress was uh, the physicist who probably, the English physicist who probably did more for Einstein than any other, Arthur Eddington. He was an astronomer at Cambridge, and he led the um, expedition that proved uh, general relativity in 1919. And here is um, Einstein with Eddington, uh, much later, actually, in Cambridge at the observatory in 1930. Now, Eddington, as I say, led the observations of the eclipse uh, in solar eclipse in May 1919. And the public announcement about general relativity was made almost exactly a century ago, uh, not quite today, on the 6th of November 1919, at a joint meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society and the Royal Society in London at Burlington House. And J.J. Thompson, who was the president of the Royal Society and therefore the successor to Newton, um, said of general relativity at the meeting, this is the most important <coughs> result obtained in connection with gravitation, the theory of gravitation, since Newton's day. And it's fitting that it should be announced at a meeting of the society uh, so closely connected with Newton. Now, immediately, uh, the almost unknown Einstein, and he, he really was not known at all in this country at this point, except to a handful of physicists, uh, was invited by the Times newspaper to explore and explain relativity for um, British non-scientific readers. Uh, this is the draft in German of his... <coughs> first uh, article for the British press. Um, it's the first page 
what is the theory of relativity it's, it's about. And it begins by expressing my joy and gratitude to the astronomers and physicists of England. And then he goes on to thank them for their efforts in testing the implications of a theory that was perfected and published during the war in the land of your enemies. So he says that quite openly. Now, in June 21, two years later, uh, almost, Einstein visited Britain in person for the first time at the invitation of uh, Lord Richard Haldane. He was a former Lord Chancellor, a lifelong Germanophile, and the author of a best-selling uh, philosophical study of relativity, which had come out that year. So it's fair to say he had a slight motive for wanting Einstein to come over to promote his book as well. Um, but he was a great admirer, and there's the, uh, the two of them together, Einstein being photographed by the press in Haldane's garden uh, in London, and Haldane is standing second from the left, uh, keeping an eye. Um, the highlight of this visit to London in 1921 was a lecture at King's College uh, on the 13th of June in the afternoon. And in the morning, Einstein had laid a wreath uh, on the grave of Newton at Westminster Abbey. And the lecture hall at King's was absolutely packed. Um, the students were standing all around uh, the edge. Um, and Haldane got his feet, and he said, uh, to introduce Einstein, you are in the presence of the Newton of the 20th century, of a man who has effected a greater revolution in thought than that of Copernicus, Galileo, and even Newton himself. But uh, no one applauded uh, when Einstein got up. There was silence. And uh, the reason is anti-German feeling was very strong. Uh, even two years after the end of the war. Then Einstein began to speak uh, in German, um, which is the only language he was really confident in at this point in his life. Uh, and he spoke first about British physics and then about relativity. But the silence continued. Uh, there was no response. And then at some point he said uh, in German, my lecture is already a little long. And there was a storm of encouraging applause from the audience. And he then said, I shall take that as an invitation, and smiled. And the applause was then redoubled. I'm getting this from a, a, a reliable news report of the lecture. And there was a dinner that evening um, in King's College, quite a grand dinner. And the principal of the college uh, naturally made a speech. And in the speech was... This section, of, uh, this section of the speech with a subtle reference uh, to relativity. He said, if at your command the straight lines have been banished from our universe, there is yet one straight line which will always remain, the straight line of right and justice. May both our nations follow this straight line side by side in a parallel movement, which, in spite of Euclid, will yet bring them together in friendship with one another and with the other nations of the world. Now, Einstein went back to Germany after that, and a few days later, he wrote to Haldane on the 17th of June, and he said, with, I think, transparently sincere emotion, 
the impression this land, i.e. England, Britain, with its wonderful intellectual and political tradition, left on me was a profound and lasting one, even larger than I had expected. And Haldane replied, uh, I think also sincerely, there is no doubt that your visit has had more tangible results in improving the relations between our two countries than any other single event. Your name is a power in our country. <coughs> well, Einstein's growing fame and his, his generous personal welcome uh, in Britain in 1919 to 21 uh, must have been a piquant experience for him. Because in Germany, back home in Germany, the same period um, saw the birth of a vociferous anti-relativity movement. Uh, and it's quite shocking to read about even now. Uh, and it culminated in the publication in 1931 uh, of a book in German uh, with the uh, revealing title, A Hundred Authors Against Einstein, um, which I've I, I have to confess I've only dipped. I haven't read it. Now, it's not essentially an anti-Semitic uh, publication, which you might possibly think. Um, the anti-relativity movement did coincide with increasing German abuse of Einstein uh, as a Jew, uh, accentuated by his declared uh, sympathy for the Zionist uh, desire to found a national home for the Jews in Palestine from 1921 onwards. And also, there was abuse of him for his uh, increasing sympathy for pacifism. Um, but during the first half of the 1920s, uh, Einstein really found himself in a rather disturbing position because he was promoted and hailed as an important cultural ambassador for Weimar Germany uh, when he traveled and lectured in many countries starting in the United States and Britain in 1921. Then he went to Japan in 1922, Palestine in 1923, and then South America in 1925. And here's, a, I think, a rather charming uh, photo of him in Government House in Jerusalem in 1923. Uh, and he's standing on the second from right, and his wife, his second wife, Elsa, is second from left. And in between them, is uh, the High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner for Palestine, which was under the British mandate at this time uh, with his wife, Sir Herbert Samuel. And Einstein and Samuel formed a friendship. And in fact, Einstein stayed with Samuel in 1930 when he came to the dinner that I showed you earlier with Bernard Shaw. But he was his ambassador, but he was also fiercely attacked by many Germans uh, at home and abroad at this time, at the very same time. He was placed, frankly, at risk of assassination in Germany in 1922, uh, after his friend Rathenau was killed in Berlin in the broad daylight in the street. Um, and he noted later in his travel diary in Argentina, rather memorably, as a private note, but he said, a funny lot, these Germans. To them, I am a stinking flower and yet they keep putting me into their buttonhole. Now, several times in this period, he, he thought of leaving Germany for good, and it gave him a sense of what was coming much more closely than most people had. Britain took Einstein to its heart, really, in the 1920s, by contrast. Uh, in 1923, 
um, the Royal Institution um, honoured him, uh, now under its director, uh, William Henry Bragg, the father of Lawrence. I hope I've got them the right way round. And he uh, thanked uh, the institution in Royal Institution in this German letter from the archives. Uh, and in 1925, the Royal Society uh, awarded him its highest honor, the Copley Medal, which they'd given to Faraday in 1838 at a similar very young age. Uh, and at the same time, Bertrand Russell uh, published the ABC of Relativity, uh, which did very well, became a bestseller. And a poet uh, who's a bit forgotten now, but was well known at the time, Sir John Squire, J.C. Squire, um, also took two classic lines written by Alexander Pope about Newton in 1730, and he extended these uh, two lines into a four-line poem, which I'll just read you. Starts with Pope. Um, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. It did not last. The devil, howling, ho, let Einstein be, restored the status quo. In 1927, uh, Einstein sat for a portrait uh, by William Rothenstein, um, who was then principal of the Royal College of Art in London. And he sat in his study in Berlin and was sketched by Rosenstein. And I've always loved this portrait. It's not as well known as it should be. Uh, I've used it in my book. And Rosenstein wrote a little note to the effect that there was one framed print uh, on the wall of Einstein's study in Berlin. Uh, only one, and it was a portrait of James Clark Maxwell. Now, at this time, also, Oxford University uh, began what would become a fruitful relationship with Einstein, involving three fairly short visits in 1931, 1932, and 1933. And the driving force behind this relationship was Frederick Lindemann. Uh, he was now, uh, I showed you a photo of him in the Solvay Congress when he was a young man, but he was now um, professor of physics based at Christchurch College in, Ox in, in, in Oxford. And later, Lindemann uh, became the chief scientific advisor uh, to Winston Churchill uh, as Lord Charwell. And that's, I couldn't resist including a, uh, a post-war cartoon of uh, this eminence grise uh, in a bowler hat behind uh, Churchill. And I won't say much about it, but Lindemann was a fairly right-wing figure, uh, at times very right-wing, but he was not sympathetic to the Nazis. Now, he was acting at this time in the late 1920s. Lindemann was acting on behalf of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford, and they uh, wanted to launch uh, lectures in memory of Cecil Rhodes, and we know that's, he's now a controversial name. But even in the 1920s, there was some controversy. But anyway, they wanted to launch these lectures, and Einstein initially resisted, mainly for health reasons, uh, but he finally agreed to visit Oxford, and that was really, I think, because of his uh, admiration for British physics. And he stayed in 1931 in rooms at Christchurch, uh, which Lindemann got for him, 
And he gave three lectures at Rhodes House. And he also accepted an honorary doctorate from the university. Now, uh, all I'll say about it is that uh, it was uh, quite a, a nice occasion. Uh, but the Latin oration honoring Einstein, which is the traditional thing in Oxford, uh, in Latin, uh, failed to translate relativity into Latin. If you read it, there's no um, version of relativity in Latin. Uh, and it also failed to mention Isaac Newton, uh, probably because he was from Cambridge, uh, <laughs> not Oxford. It's an equally amazing omission. Now, the scientific content of the Rose Lectures, uh, frankly, is of no lasting significance uh, because it either repeated Einstein's published work already in existence uh, on relativity or it was soon rendered redundant by new ideas from Einstein and from other physicists. So I think more interesting is the reaction of the audience in Oxford um, to the lectures. Now, some of them uh, knew no German, uh, and there was no interpreter, and Einstein spoke entirely in German, and, of course, many of them knew no mathematics. Uh, now, the Oxford Times, uh, the local paper, tried to capture this atmosphere in several reports, and I'll just give you very briefly one vignette. Uh, Professor Einstein, wearing his new doctor's robes, this is from the Oxford Times, acknowledged the applause which greeted his appearance by smiling and bowing. As the lecture proceeded, not only equations, but a singular diagram appeared on the blackboard, and Professor Einstein gesticulated helpfully in curves with the chalk to explain it. At this point, he turned repeatedly from his audience to the blackboard and back. Later, the diagrams were rubbed off in favor of more formulae, and the better informed members of the audience were kept busy taking these down. Well, we know that one of the less informed members of the audience had already fallen asleep. And this was Henry Julian White, uh, who was the dean of Christchurch. Uh, and he is a biblical scholar uh, in his 70s, presumably knew very little in the way of physics, and he slept soundly through the lecture right in front of the speaker. Uh, now, Einstein had a sense of humor, and he thought this was rather funny. And uh, perhaps I think he did learn a lesson, um, because uh, after one of uh, his lectures, the, the three lectures, he apparently remarked, uh, to someone in his rather curious English that the next time he had to visit uh, Oxford and give a lecture, the discourse should be in English delivered. That's what he said. And he did follow his own advice. He knew his English wasn't up to, to, uh, to giving a lecture without help. Uh, when he gave his most important lecture uh, in Oxford in 1933, uh, which physicists still talk about today, um, he had it translated into fluent English by three Oxford academics. And then he read it out loud. Uh, and in it, he controversially argued, which is why people still talk about it, that mathematics, not experiment, uh, is the key uh, criterion for understanding nature. He said, 
Experience, of course, remains the sole criterion of the serviceability of a mathematical construction for physics. But the truly creative principle resides in mathematics. Well, I won't say any more about that, but it's still pretty controversial. The blackboards had a rather strange afterlife. Um, most of them have disappeared, of course, but two of them were saved. Um, some Oxford dons at the, probably the second lecture favored uh, preserving the blackboards. Uh, but Einstein was definitely against the idea. Uh, according to his diary, um, private of course, but he wrote, preservation would be uh, a smack of personality cult with adverse effect on others. One could easily see the jealousy of distinguished English scholars. So I protested, but this was perceived as false modesty. On arrival back at Christchurch, I felt shattered. Not even a cart horse could endure so much. Today, whether he would approve or not, one of the blackboards survives. And it's the most famous object in Oxford's History of Science Museum, which has 18,000 objects, but this is the most famous. Um, people come uh, from all over the world to see it, and nothing else in the museum. They just want to see the blackboard. And the second blackboard, which was also saved, uh, was actually wiped clean by mistake uh, in the storeroom of the museum. So it, it survives, but as a bare board. <laughs> And it really does intrigue people. Um, it's, a bit, it's a cult object. It's described as a relic of a secular saint um, by the uh, website of the museum. Now, the mathematical symbols do neatly summarize a cosmology paper written by Einstein in April 31, published in Berlin, just before he came to Oxford. Uh, they're based on a relativistic model of an expanding universe um, using Edwin Hubble's very recently announced measurements of the expanding universe to estimate three quantities, the density of matter, the radius of the cosmos, and the time span of the cosmic expansion. But a physicist who's worked on this, uh, an Irish physicist called Cormac O'Raffertag, has proved that Einstein actually made a mistake with the Hubble constant. And so there's an arithmetic error in the blackboard. And the time span should have been uh, a factor of 10 lower than he gives it. Now, physics took up only part of his time in Oxford. Um, for example, he was sketched uh, by a visiting artist, uh, F. Ritzy, uh, who also always referred to Einstein as Professor Eisenstein. Um, and this sketch, which is quite nice, uh, was done in his rooms in Christchurch. And you can see it today in the senior common room uh, of Christchurch College. Now, he also played his violin a lot um, with a chamber music society, semi-professional society in North Oxford. And he gave a performance at Rhodes House after dinner, which uh, was a bit of a disaster. Um, the guests left the room, according to Einstein's uh, own diary. He spoke to various groups as well, including the Quakers 
uh, about his politics, uh, including his passion for uh, pacifism. And he attended a debate at the Oxford Union, although he didn't actually speak. And you can see him there in a dinner jacket, second from left. Uh, and third from left in the row behind him uh, is a very young uh, Michael Foote. Now, he didn't take part in the debate, which is about British politics, uh, but he, he listened. Uh, and there is a record. They paid tribute to him. He also wandered around Oxford. He liked to walk, um, either with others or on his own. And this is a rather curious mystery photograph of Einstein uh, somewhere in a college. Uh, and the evidence suggests it might be Magdalen College, Oxford. And he's talking to two men. Uh, and again, we don't know who they are, and we don't know how the photo was taken. It's really a mystery. Um, the man on the right is probably, from appearance, Professor Hermann Fiedler, who was Professor of German Language and Literature at Oxford. And we know that he was friendly with Einstein because Einstein's diary said, I went for walks with Fiedler. The man in the middle really is a mystery. Uh, he looks a bit like Frederick Lindemann, but not, uh, it's not possible to prove it, although Christchurch archivists have looked at it for me and others. Uh, and if it is Lindemann, then this is the only photograph ever taken of Einstein with Lindemann in Britain, because Lindemann disliked being photographed. On one of the occasions when he was walking around, he had an encounter with an undergraduate, William Golding, uh, who wrote later The Lord of the Flies and received a Nobel Prize. And Golding had started uh, as a science undergraduate, and had then uh, moved on to literature. And sometime in 1931, uh, according to Golding, um, he happened to be standing on a small bridge in Magdalen College Deer Park, looking at the river, when a tiny moustached and hatted figure joined him. Professor Einstein knew no English at this time, and I knew only two words of German. I beamed at him, trying wordlessly to convey by my bearing all the affection and, regard and respect that the English felt for him. For about five minutes, the two of them stood side by side. At last, said Golding, with true greatness, I, Professor Einstein realized that any contact was better than none. He pointed to a trout in the river, wavering in midstream, and said, fish, <laughs> in German. Desperately, I sought for some sign by which I might convey that I, too, revered pure reason. I nodded vehemently. In a brilliant flash, I used up half my German vocabulary. Ja, ja, fish. <laughs> I would have given all my Greek and my Latin and my French and a good slice of my English for enough German to communicate. But we were divided. He was as inscrutable as my headmaster. So they stood there, the, the uh, unknown English undergraduate and the world-famous German scientist. And then, said Golding, Professor Einstein uh, disappeared, his whole figure still conveying goodwill and amiability. He drifted away out of sight. It's a lovely story, and not very well known, incidentally. Now, of course, he also spent time in Christchurch, uh, in his rooms, outdoors in the college quadrangles, 
and on solitary walks in the famous meadows. And he also attended formal meals in Christchurch Hall. Um, but it has to be said uh, that Einstein was not very keen on dinner jackets and gowns. And he referred to himself in his diary as a barbarian among the Holy Brotherhood in tales. Formal dress, I think, reminded him uh, a little too much of military uniform, um, of Zwang, which was the German word for coercion, which he often used when he wanted to talk about Prussianism. And as you no doubt know, as a child, he, he was very much opposed to authority, and it carried on throughout his life. Today, however, it has to be said that Christchurch Hall uh, has an image of Einstein in a stained glass window, um, top left, I think. You can see him with one or two other famous Christchurch people. Um, there's also a wonderful photograph uh, of Einstein in uh, the main quadrangle in Christchurch, in Tom Quad, which I've used uh, for the jacket of my book, Einstein on the Run. And it's, again, not that well known. Uh, he's walking uh, in the quad, uh, holding his pipe. And he's by now uh, a refugee. Uh, he's a political refugee. This is May or June of 1933. Um, in March of that year, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, shortly after Adolf Hitler came to power, Einstein publicly criticized uh, the repressive policies of the new National Socialist government. He then resigned from the Prussian Academy of Sciences before they could kick him out, and he voluntarily returned his German citizenship. And he found a temporary home for himself um, on the coast of Belgium uh, with his second wife, Elsa. And in response, uh, very early uh, in, in, the, in 1933, as soon as he did these things, he was vehemently attacked in the German press, and his scientific works uh, were burned uh, in uh, Berlin. And this cartoon uh, appeared uh, in a German newspaper on April the 1st, uh, which was National Boycott Jews Day. That was the first time they'd done this. And this cartoon appeared, um, and it shows Einstein being kicked out of the German embassy in Brussels. Now, after this, uh, things became more serious. Uh, the government in Germany confiscated um, Einstein and his wife's bank accounts, and he was said to be treasonously spreading communist-influenced atrocity propaganda, that's what they called it, uh, from his home in Belgium, against Germany, of course. Now, one especially prominent publication, which you can still see online if you search for it, very anti-Semitic publication, which was personally approved by Joseph Goebbels, um, shows a photograph of Einstein and many other Jews uh, and under the photograph is this rather sinister caption. Uh, it says, bis jetzt ungehenkt. Uh, apologies for my German pronunciation, but that means not yet hanged. And it was around this time uh, that Einstein, in late May, came back uh, to Oxford. In late June, after staying in Oxford, he went back to Belgium. 
But in late July, he came back again uh, to Britain. And this time, he was introduced to Winston Churchill at his country house, Chartwell, in a private meeting to discuss the Nazi threat. Uh, in the presence of Frederick Lindemann and one other man, a conservative member of parliament, um, Oliver Locker Lampson. I'll mention him again in a moment. Now, later that day, Einstein wrote to his wife in Belgium about Churchill. And he said, he is an eminently, an eminently wise man, and it has become clear to me that these people have planned well ahead and will act soon. And he's underlined the word soon in the letter to his wife. Well, it has to be said that they were an unlikely couple. Um, Churchill's aristocratic background, his intense patriotism, his convinced militarism, and his ignorance of science, which is why he needed Lindemann, uh, was wholly unlike Einstein. But they were similar in this respect, in their early prescient distrust of Nazism. Um, even if, it has to be said, Einstein, for obvious reasons, inevitably was the more prescient of the two about the military threat from Germany. Soon after this meeting, Commander Locker-Lampson, uh, who had actually introduced the two of them, um, spoke about Einstein in a, a speech in the House of Commons and the Jewish predicament in Germany. It's quite a powerful and moving speech, if you want to read it in Hansard. Um, and Einstein was watching from the visitor's gallery. Uh, and all the MPs were apparently uh, looking up at Einstein. They were um, very entranced by him. Um, then Einstein went back again to Belgium. But in August, he went uh, further in attacking the Nazis. Uh, he abandoned his former pacifist position, which, he's he which he'd held passionately for throughout the 1920s. And he publicly argued for British and French rearmament against Germany. Uh, this American cartoon appeared at the time, showing him taking up the sword and cutting off the wing of the dove of peace. And he also publicly endorsed a new book, um, the Brown Book of the Hitler Terror, which had been published uh, in German and in English uh, in London uh, by Galantz. Um, and it consisted of eyewitness statements by German victims of Nazism and horrific pictures of torture and murder. Uh, Einstein endorsed this. Um, and inevitably, he was public enemy number one of the Nazis now, and his life really was in danger. Um, he had to be officially protected uh, by police officers uh, all day and night uh, in uh, his house in Belgium. And this shows one of the officers with Elsa Einstein, his second wife, in the middle. On the 30th of August, um, the end of the month, Nazi extremists shot dead um, an associate of Einstein in Czechoslovakia. Um, the controversial German-Jewish philosopher Theodore Lessing. Uh, and the assassins then escaped to Germany and were immediately honored for what they'd done. Uh, within days, press reports appeared in Europe and America suggesting that Einstein was next in line and mentioning 
a hefty financial reward placed on his head. Even so, Einstein shrugged his shoulders. He uh, told his hugely anxious wife, when a bandit is going to commit a crime, he keeps it secret. But she insisted, shortly after this, she insisted that he go on the run and escape uh, possible Nazi retribution. And on the 9th of September, he discreetly uh, left uh, Belgium. He crossed the channel on a boat, carrying a few bags only of vital scientific books and papers and a few clothes, and he headed for London. But instead of going from the capital to Oxford, which is his familiar birth, which he thought was too public, uh, he instead uh, went from uh, London to um, the countryside, the depths of the English countryside. And his host now was again Commander Locker Lampson, who owned land and property in Norfolk. And the MP really sprang into action uh, at very short notice and offered Einstein accommodation uh, in his, one of his holiday huts uh, at an undisclosed disclosed location near Cromer, close to the sea. Immediately, Einstein informed a British newspaper, I shall become a naturalized Englishman as soon as it is possible for my papers to go through. However, I cannot tell you yet whether I shall make England my home. Well, a bizarre mixture of secrecy and publicity uh, surrounded this entire visit to Norfolk uh, from this photo. Um, it was almost certainly staged by Locker Lampson, uh, and it shows Locker Lampson on the left holding a gun, uh, Einstein looking very relaxed in a chair, uh, looking over his shoulder as one of Locker Lampson's secretaries, um, and then in the background, uh, there's a, uh, also an armed gamekeeper, a local gamekeeper um, called Herbert Eastow. And this was then published um, on the front page of the Daily Express. And it was also published in other papers uh, with a long caption um, explaining what was going on. But it didn't give the location. But then any, anyone who wanted to guess and find out, certainly any Nazi agent, could have found out where he was fairly easily. Now, Locker Lampson uh, was described at this time in a letter uh, by Einstein to his wife in Belgium as wonderful. He keeps everything away. I live here like a hermit, only I do not need to eat roots and herbs. And this is, um, I think, a rather enchanting photo of him uh, with a stain on his, what looks like his dressing gown, uh, like a hermit. Uh, suitably disheveled, um, uh, the Einstein we all know and may be uh, fascinated by. Now, one of his local guards, um, Albert Thurston, used to follow him to the local post office. And he said, I would walk across the heath um, and I would follow Einstein with a gun. Uh, I don't think the post office knew who he was. He would buy sweets, simple things like a child might buy. And once uh, Thurston showed Einstein um, his young baby son. And he said, um, he loved children. And he touched my son on the forehead and said, double crown, he'll go a long way. 
On another occasion, Einstein invited two local village women to visit him and take tea in this holiday hut. And they came, but when they discovered the hut was full of German newspapers and a chest of drawers full of guns, uh, they took fright and ran away. Now, there's a caricature that you may know uh, done by the political cartoonist David Lowe um, of Einstein at this time. Um, and I think it captures his unique situation um, rather beautifully. Uh, it's published with an article by John Maynard Keynes about Einstein in October 33 in the New Statesman. And it shows him walking towards a dark shadow, suitably disheveled. Now, the only major interruption to this reclusive existence was a visit from the sculptor Jacob Epstein. And it was arranged by Locker Lampson. And Epstein came to this not-so-secret hideaway in Norfolk uh, to prepare a model for his magnificent bust, bronze bust of Einstein, which you can see uh, today in the Tate Gallery. Uh, and in his autobiography, Let There Be Sculpture, Einstein, uh, Epstein vividly uh, recalled what Einstein was like. He wrote, uh, Einstein appeared dressed very comfortably in a pullover with his wild hair floating in the wind. His glance contained a mixture of the humane, the humorous, and the profound. This was a combination which delighted me. He resembled the aging Rembrandt. Uh, and I love this photo of the two of them, uh, Einstein and Epstein, with the bust, the model of the bust in between, standing outside the holiday hut. Now, unfortunately, there was too little time for the, the model to be finished by Epstein. Um, he had to finish it in London later, uh, because Einstein was needed uh, to give a talk, uh, a speech at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Uh, this, again, was organized by the dynamic Locker Lampson on behalf of the Refugee Assistant Committee, Assistance Committee. And the whole event was designed to aid uh, Jewish academic refugees uh, from Germany. And other speakers included uh, Ernest Rutherford, who was the chairman of the meeting, um, the statesman Austin Chamberlain, and the economist William Beveridge. And needless to say, the Albert Hall was absolutely packed. Um, there were more than 10,000 people estimated to be there, including a delegation of black shirts from Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. And outside, there were police everywhere because uh, there was a rumor uh, of a potential terrorist attack. Um, nothing happened in the end. Um, there's Einstein uh, addressing the crowd uh, in October 33. Uh, his eyes constantly looking down because he was reading quietly from his English manuscript. It seemed as if he was reading as unconcernedly as if lecturing in a classroom, according to the New York Times reporter. But he clearly did have the attention of the audience because they were very quiet and then they would suddenly burst into applause. And at one point, um, he said as follows, this is probably the most famous comment, if we want to resist the powers which threaten to suppress intellectual and individual freedom, we must keep clearly before us what is at stake, what we owe to the freedom which our ancestors 
have won for us after hard struggles. Without such freedom, there would have been no Shakespeare, no Goethe, no Newton, no Faraday, no Pasteur, and no Lister. And this created a, a storm of sympathetic applause. But then he went on, being Einstein, to make this radical idiosyncratic suggestion uh, for encouraging scientific creativity. And it was apparently based on his retreat uh, in Norfolk uh, near uh, a lighthouse uh, on the coast. He suggested, could not unemployed uh, young creative people who needed jobs, uh, could they not uh, take jobs as lighthouse keepers? This would give them ample time for solitary reflection on scientific problems. Well, um, Einstein loved that solitariness, but not many scientists would. Now, afterwards, on the steps of the hall, Einstein made a statement to a reporter. I don't know whether in German or in English, but I'll just quote it because it's rather touching, and then I'll, I'll come to an end. I could not believe that it was possible that such spontaneous affection could be extended to one who is a wanderer, a wanderer on the face of the earth. The kindness of your people has touched my heart so deeply that I cannot find words to express in English what I feel. I shall leave England for America at the end of the week, but no matter how long I live, I shall never forget the kindness which I've received from the people of England. He never returned to Britain uh, after 1933, and in fact, he never came back to Europe from America after 33. But he never lost touch with Britain. Uh, in April 55, just days before his death, he signed the Russell Einstein Manifesto against the spread of nuclear weapons. And this is an um, audio recording released by Bertrand Russell um, just a few months after Einstein's death. And the final paragraph of the manifesto is as follows. Um, we appeal, we appeal as human beings to human beings. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. If you can do so, the way lies open to a new paradise. If you cannot, there lies before you the risk of universal death. Well, just after Einstein's death, uh, the Washington Post published uh, a classic cartoon by Herblock, um, Albert Einstein Lived Here. And I think this hints at why Einstein, uh, the proverbial citizen of the world, uh, chose to abandon Europe, including Britain, forever in October 33. There were his reservations about English formality, the, the dreaded dinner jacket and gown, which he'd expressed in his Oxford diary and also to others like C.P. Snow. And this played some part in the decision not to stay in England. But there were also insoluble family entanglements with his first wife, from whom he was divorced, and his mentally ill younger son in Zurich. And so, too, uh, was the factor that he feared to be dragged into the anti-Nazi cause after giving this speech at the Albert Hall. And he also expected very early, a presciently, a, presciently, a, uh, a brutal war uh, with Germany. But I think the most important reason, actually, why he left is that he wanted to be in a place where he could 
be absolutely free to think about theoretical physics, either on his own uh, or in conjunction with other uh, leading thinkers from all over the world, entirely as he wished. And the new Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton uh, offered him this prospect without any lecturing obligations, any committee obligations, any social obligations, unlike established universities such as Oxford and Cambridge, and also with a reasonable, though not particularly generous, salary. So he was on the run, not just from the Nazis, but ultimately from unwanted human contact, what he called the coercion or Zwang in German, that was imposed on him, as he felt, by others, none of which helped his science. For Einstein, science, so to speak, the planet as a whole, uh, always took precedence over nation. And that's why he never really belonged anywhere. And I think this is the, the chief reason why he left Europe. In America, he could remain apart from society whenever he chose to. But that was not the case in Europe, uh, the land of his birth. Thank you. Thank you, oh, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, we, I want to take questions uh, from the audience now. Um, and if I may, I'd like to kick off with one that uh, popped into my head as you, as you finished there, because yes. uh, the... the Truth seems to have been that it, um, that solitude that he found in Princeton didn't really help his science. That, in fact, pretty much all of the pictures that you've seen, of, uh, you've shown of him from the 1930s onwards, we think of his science as being kind of over mm. then from mm. that point. He didn't really you know, achieve the greatness that he found in his youth in really sometimes quite difficult circumstances. Yeah, Do you have any insight into why it was that he uh, was never able to, uh, to further the science in the way that he wanted to do? He did some important work, uh, but not very much, you're right, uh, after 33. And I, I think the reason is um, quantum theory, which he famously opposed as the final answer uh, to understanding physics. Uh, he worked on his own unified field theory, uh, trying to unify relativity and quantum theory. And even up to his deathbed in Princeton, he was still working. The papers are on his bedside in the hospital uh, on this unified field theory. And he was scribbling away, creating lots of manuscripts, uh, some of which survive. Um, and I think his opposition, probably, Philip, to, to quantum theory was, uh, in the end, a, it, it, did, it did hold him back. And, of course, he was no longer a young man, um, so that's another factor. But he did have contact with some pretty important people, but he shunned some others, like Niels Bohr, uh, who visited, uh, because he didn't agree with him about quantum theory. Um, I think, too, it's fair to say that he did, to some extent, cut himself off uh, uh, a little too much. Um, but he still did a great deal in America. I, I don't want to talk about it because it's not the right place, but he, he worked on anti-war causes and he helped countless Jewish refugees, refugees to come to America uh, by, by sponsoring them in many cases or helping them in, to recommend them. 
<laughs> Thank you for a really interesting talk. Uh, when he was in Cromer, I think he had a piano. When he was in Cromer? In Cromer, he had a piano that he played. Yes, he did. I think Epstein said that he was constantly, you know, running back to play the piano. Yes, Epstein said that the piano was rather, a, 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 it blocked up the hut. <laughs> um, and also, the, it was a very small hut, and they had to keep on uh, maneuvering. Um, yeah, he played a lot of music when he was in England, and he wandered out into the, um, the fresh air with his violin. Uh, and Epstein does record that uh, he listened to Einstein scraping away on this execrable instrument. And he does say, too, that the Nazis had taken his best violin, uh, which, which is also true. So he was playing on a borrowed instrument, and the, the weather was very unfriendly. But he still kept trying. Uh, music was his other great distraction, um, apart from, of course, from his calculations. Um, and he, he also he met a, a, a range of local people. Uh, but I think a lot of time was spent alone. And there is one other story I rather like about Epstein, uh, which I couldn't mention, but I will now, is that the pipe, Einstein's pipe, was a real problem because he smoked quite a lot. And in the first session with Epstein, uh, Epstein says, I couldn't see him. <laughs> there, there was so much smoke. So I had to request him to smoke in the interval, uh, which he did. Do we know, was he any good on the violin? Yes, he was, yes. yes. Uh, I've given you a slightly false impression by saying there was a disastrous um, concert in Oxford, but it wasn't actually because of Einstein's poor playing. It was that somehow the choice of music didn't appeal to the, the guests. Um, he was generally recognized as uh, formally very good. He could, he could talk to musicians and understand what they were trying to achieve uh, almost as well as they could. Uh, he had the brains to play. Uh, he, he, he practiced quite a bit, um, but he's been described as uh, relatively good <laughs> by, a, by a professional musician of note. I think that's probably fair. Um, he didn't play professionally. Mm -hmm. uh, th so there's, yes, please, a question behind there. Uh, you explained at some length uh, how he came to be in England, but is there any evidence at all that there was actually some Nazi hit squad or that they gave up when he left Belgium or, or, or anything like that? Was it, a, was it a real threat? I'm sure it was a real threat, but there's no paperwork. Um, we can't prove from the archives that there was. Um, I think the, not to repeat myself too much, but the shooting of Theodore Lessing uh, was pretty strong evidence, given that the um, Nazi newspaper, the Völkischer Beobachter, had actually accused Einstein of having written the Brown Book of the Hitler Terror, which is complete, complete fabrication. He didn't write it, he endorsed it that they uh, regarded him as completely unacceptable. Uh, and the Brown book is, is, is ferocious. Um, it was actually put together by uh, a Stalinist spy. So um, there's quite a lot of communist propaganda there. But the evidence is still genuine, and the eyewitness evidence, and convincing. And Einstein putting his name to that would have been a red rag. Um, now, he was in 
Belgium, but we do know that uh, some rather peculiar people turned up in the area, and some of them came to the house, including a former uh, SS um, officer, no, sorry, an SA officer, a brown shirt, who said, I want to sell you the secrets of the SA. Uh, I've left them, and I've fallen out with them. And Einstein's wife said, all right, I'll meet you, but I won't introduce you to the professor, because she really felt that the man might pull a gun on him. And uh, she then said to the, the agent, well, why do you think Professor Einstein would want these secrets? And he then said, uh, well, we all know that he's the leader of the opposition. Uh, so that suddenly sunk in to Elsa's mind that if that's what a former officer thought, uh, that must be widespread in Germany, the belief that Einstein uh, was the head of the opposition. So I think given the number of people who'd been uh, done in by that period in 1933, we're talking about hundreds of people in Germany, uh, it's a very reasonable guess that a prominent figure would have, uh, unprotected except for police officers who came late uh, in September, uh, would have been a real target. And it was said also that Hermann Goering's brother had come to the area and was looking around. And there were other unknown people, um, but there were certainly Germans looking around to see what was going on. Uh, but there's no definite evidence, to my knowledge, that they were planning to shoot him. And this wasn't then just a demonstration by the Nazis of of power, of saying, you know, look, if you speak out against us, we can do this to you wherever you are in the world. They did, it sounds like they did actually genuinely think that he was some kind of threat yes. to them. I think definitely. The, the combination of his rejection of pacifism, uh, he was one of the most prominent pacifists in the 20s, and the fact he publicly called for rearmament, um, and um, the fact he was so prominent uh, and was speaking constantly against um, Nazi Germany in different ways, often not too vociferously, but he was always hostile and was saying things publicly rather than just keeping them to himself. I think that would have alerted them to his influence. And there's an editorial in the Sunday Times I came across from the 10th of September, the day after uh, he left Belgium, actually, saying that if we want to warn the German government um, that if they take this step, they will be ostracized as they have never been before, even during the First World War. So, you know, a leading newspaper in Britain was taking it seriously, as was the New York Times um, and other newspapers. And the figures, the amount of money that had been put on his head, they were, it was openly stated. It differed, of course, and the amounts were, were not always consistent. It openly stated in the press at that time. Question. But we can't prove it. Uh, yes, sir. Sorry for a, another question along the same theme. But uh -huh. uh, did, I, did his family suffer at all at the hands of the Nazi regime during the Second World War? Is there any evidence of that? Um, there were some friends who suffered, but compared to Max Born, his, one of his closest friends, who lost uh, far more people to uh, the concentration camps, Einstein got off relatively lightly. Um, I mean, one of his stepdaughters had died before the war, so she was 
not under threat. The other one had come to America, and then his sister joined him uh, in Princeton, and then became quite ill, and he looked after her in the 50s, um, or late 40s and 50s. Um, there were other relatives who got out, um, but I think it's fair to say that compared to Max Born and many others that he knew, Einstein did get off quite lightly, but he reacted very, very badly against Germany after the war. And Max Born said, you're, you're going too far. There are some good Germans as well. And he, he then went back to Germany and lived there in the last few years of his life. And Einstein said, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You're going back to the land of the mass murderers of our kin, kinsmen. And Born disagreed. He, he said, no, there, there are exceptions, and I've met some of them, uh, and I'm, I'm going to stay. Uh, but Einstein, of course, um, refused awards from Germany uh, after the war and never returned. Um, so it's a reflection on him as a human being that I think he, he held very strong views, uh, not always right, but about people that, that he, he refused to change. Um, perhaps because of his solitariness. I, I think there's an element of that. But I don't want to give you the impression that he didn't meet a lot of people in America. I mean, there, is a, there are two uh, different points of view about whether he was solitary or whether, in fact, he was in constant touch with people in America. And, and I think the truth is he did meet a lot of physicists and a lot of Jewish refugees, but he had very, very few close connections in, in America. And you often see him on his own at home, um, uh, clearly spending long periods reflecting on physics, and then going to a, to a meeting in the institute. Um, but on the whole, as he got older, he was more and more solitary, I think it's fair to say. Thank you. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, his collaboration with Bertrand Russell. Yes. Um, I remember reading a pamphlet that he produced with uh, Freud. Yes. Uh, on, I think, World Why Peace. War. Why yes. War. Would yes. you say a few words about that, where he did it, how they collaborated? Yes, I, I tried to get that pamphlet included in the Senate House exhibition on writing in times of conflict, because they haven't put it in, and I think they should. Um, it, was, it came about in 1932, before the Nazi came, Nazis came to power. Um, what was, I forget the name now, but the predecessor of UNESCO... Uh, asked Freud and Einstein to, to have an exchange. Uh, they'd also had uh, UNESCO, or the previous organization, had organized other meetings of minds in print. And uh, they were trying to consider uh, the roots of war and whether anything could be done to change the mental mindset that leads to war. And Einstein was more pessimistic than Freud, I think, um, and they, it goes back and forth, and it's, Einstein's contribution, I think, is, is more powerful and longer than Freud's. Uh, it's no longer in print, but you, you can see it. Um, and I suppose that would have been another factor, come to think of it, in the Nazi attitude, because that was available by the time that uh, the Nazi regime came to power. They would have been aware of that. Possibly it was burnt, I don't know, in Berlin, but certainly the scientific work suffered from that, along with some others, not just Einstein. And Freud and Einstein, to the best of my knowledge, didn't meet, which is a pity. Um, 
And they didn't have a chance to, of course, in the late 30s, because Einstein was in America and Freud was in London. Uh, so we don't know how they would have got on as people. But they did seem to be, to some extent, a meeting of minds in the, in the pamphlet. Why did Einstein hate quantum mechanics so much, like so vehemently? I think I'll hand over to Philip at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I would say um, Einstein didn't hate quantum mechanics. Um, There's a a widespread view that he did, but he had a particular view about uh, quantum mechanics, which, of course, he helped instigate. He was one of the very first to instigate in 1905. but he believed passionately that, that there must at some uh, level be a description of the physical world that is objective and that tells us how things are. And quantum mechanics, according to Niels Bohr and his followers, uh, Van Heisenberg and others, seemed to undermine that idea. It seemed to say there comes a point at which you cannot any longer have that uh, um, clear-cut uh, knowledge about how things are. Uh, and in fact, Bohr suggested that all it can really tell you, according to quantum mechanics at least, is that um, uh, it can tell you, the quantum mechanics can tell you what you will see if you investigate the world. And it is silent about what is actually there underneath that or before you look. And to Einstein, Einstein just felt that intuitively that felt mm. wrong to him, that that really wasn't what, um, what, what science is meant to do. And so he actually said, he didn't hate quantum mechanics, he just thought it was incomplete. That's and right. you mentioned in your book that there is this, this point where he, um, mm. that, that's exactly the way he puts it. And, and Born and Einstein had a long correspondence, and after Einstein's death, Born wrote about this very question, that he thought that the abandonment of certainty in science, which had come about through quantum mechanics, was in fact a great thing. And that to believe that you, only you, have the truth is a, is, is, is a very corrupting idea, both in physics and in uh, the rest of our lives. And he welcomed the uncertainty introduced by quantum mechanics, but Einstein didn't. Uh, they radically differed on that. And the different views that that people still take about this, I mean, it's really interesting to me that because we have no way of settling experimentally this question of who is right, um, it seems at the moment that in in many respects Niels Bohr was right and Einstein was wrong about some of the things he believed, but we don't know that for sure, that there will ultimately be another layer that we will uncover. And so it seems to me that the, the perspectives scientists take on this says something about their personality and their expectations mm. and their attitude to science more generally. Yeah, thank, <clears throat> thank you very much. That was brilliant. Against all expectation, I'm going to buy the book. I didn't think I would be. Thank you. Very interesting indeed. Um, would you say, and <clears throat> personally, but also experts' view, that he was on the autistic or Asperger's syndrome? I know a lot of... Uh, famous like Dirac and others and whatever you in terms of thinking outside the box concentrating etc etc it sounds to me that it might well be Hmm. yeah I haven't given that a lot of thought I wrote another book um, The Man Who Deciphered Linear B about Michael Ventris and he was also a candidate for that before it had really become a recognised condition and I never could make up my mind whether he suffered from it or not I just guess I don't know Uh, enough about the subject. Strangely, I think, I mean, Philip might correct me, but I don't think I've ever seen 
anyone seriously say Einstein might have Asperger's? I've, I've never seen it in all, all my reading. I, I think he was... Maybe I've given the impression that he was a little too solitary at the end, but he, he was very social in his earlier life. And he was certainly willing to, to engage with debates with others and listen to them, not only in physics, but uh, on pacifism and, and, and even art and music. And I don't, I don't feel that he did suffer from a, a psychological disability, uh, although it is true that when he was a child, um, as you, you probably know, that he, he learned to speak in a rather curious way uh, by repeating complete sentences in his mind, and then when he got them clear, he would utter them. Uh, he didn't really want to, to utter um, incomplete sentences. Um, and his parents did take him to a doctor to, to find out whether he had a speech impediment. It is true that his childhood was somewhat disturbed, but... I think that was because he was so keen to tutor himself. He wanted to learn un in his own way. He didn't want to be taught by others. Throughout his life, you do feel that. Uh, he doesn't want to go to an institution and be taught. By, he's willing to listen to individuals, but he doesn't want to be formally taught. And, and there is a famous comment, which I love, that to punish me for my contempt of authority, Fate has made me an authority myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought that was vintage Einstein. And it is genuine. <laughs> I checked. I wrote an article about misquotation, and I checked that one. There is a comment in here, though, Andrew, that surprised me. And I can't remember whether it's from you or whether it's someone else quoting this that makes a comparison between Einstein and Paul Dirac. Um, and Paul Dirac famously, I, you know, I think it is clear that he was on the aspertic spectrum in, yes. in some sense. Um, Graham Farmlow's book about him is called The Strangest Man. And the Strangest Man, certainly yes. was a strange man. And I didn't think of Einstein at all in that sense, you know, that he seemed much more sociable. Um, and I was interested about that comparison. But remind me, was it, was it you or was it someone um, It was somebody else, but I have written a comparison okay. recently between Dirac and Einstein. I, I'm not in any way competent to compare them in depth. And Graham Farmelow has helped me a little bit with it. Um, I'd like to stress that Einstein was a humanitarian. I think this is what I wrote about in the article. You know, we are fascinated by him, if we are, not only by his brain and his physics, but he was a humanitarian. He really did care about war, education, uh, social life. He didn't necessarily want to be involved personally, but um, there were constant comments. And he did give great help to uh, academic refugees from Europe. It's quite moving to see how much help he gave. And in fact, he wrote so many letters that his signature became somewhat devalued because he was supporting too many people and asking you know, authorities to help them. Um, but he strongly believed he should do that. He didn't cut himself off. And I think, I, I've read that Dirac burst into tears uh, in 1955 when Einstein died. Um, and Graham might correct me, but I think that's the only recorded instant of Dirac crying uh, in his life. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but it was very, very rare. 
I can't imagine that being the case with Einstein. He was not always bursting into tears, but he, his eyes would weep sometimes. Journalists record that when he was talking about certain things that moved him. And he laughed an enormous amount. He loved jokes. Uh, everyone says his laughter would boom around the room. Uh, in Princeton, as an old man and much younger, he would, uh, he would adore a joke that it appealed to him. Uh, like in Switzerland, when um, they created a fake nameplate for him on his door, um, which translates from the German as Albert Knight of the shit leg, I think, or something <laughs> like that. And he and his wife thought that was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and so the jokes come and come and come, and that's why the comments by Einstein are, are often a mixture of the uh, humorous and the profound. I think that's quite rare. Well, one of the things that, has, that really struck me about this book also is that um, it gives us some perspective, I think, on the question that is still being discussed today about the extent to which scientists should be politically engaged or, on the contrary, should, be, you know, should, should withdraw from, from mm. that sphere and mm. just focus on their science. I think Einstein gives us a fascinating insight into that question and how it's been thought about in It in comes and times. goes, doesn't it? It does, yes. Yeah. yes. There are periods um, where he's deeply involved with politics. Uh, and, you know, the statement about there'd be no Shakespeare, no Goethe, no Faraday, no Newton, I mean, he, he, he really cared about that issue. Uh, and that's what moved the audience in the Albert Hall. But then the lighthouse story, uh, it, it comes in the same speech. And various scientists who knew him later, uh, like Leopold Infeld, his Polish collaborator, said, Einstein loved being solitary and it was fruitful for him, but most scientists would hate it. We certainly don't want to. We think our best ideas come through collaboration. Um, so there's always this, this mixture with Einstein. He's solitary, but he's, he's sometimes gregarious. Well, I bet that indicates there's still more to be said, but um, not tonight, sadly, because right. we've run out of time. So please join me in thanking Andrew Robinson. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Drop us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud to let us know what you think. If you liked this episode, you can support the Royal Institution on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can also get Andrew Robinson's book, Einstein on the Run, from all good bookshops. And remember to go to rigb.org to see what talks we have coming up next. <laughs>